us turn together in God's word to the Gospel of John and the chapter 3. The Gospel of John and the third chapter. And I read verses 1 to 13. I remind the men, first of all, that uh, after the ministry of God's word, there will be, uh, we'll have the closing hymn, and then after that, there will be a time of discussion, at which time we'll close off the live uh, broadcast. But that we'll have time, a free discussion afterward, and uh, we pray that the Lord will bless what we have before us this morning. John chapter 3. I read verses 1 to 13. Let us hear God's word. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless that reading of his word. We turn now to chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 35 to verse 46. And the context here is the Lord has just fed 5,000 and many follow him. And he has been saying that he is the bread which has come down from heaven. Many rejected that. 
Many rejected already that he is the Son of God. And he has said now that except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me or heaven. John 6.35 And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you, that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. We now turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16. Verse 6 through to the end of verse 14. Acts 16. And the context here is that the Apostle Paul and Silas have been directed by the Spirit of God. If you read the passages or the verses that we're about to read here now, they were forbidden to go to a certain place, but were directed to go to the region of Galatia and so on, but forbidden to go to Asia. Acts 16, verse 6. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit suffered them not. And they passing by Mysia came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over unto Macedonia and help us. And after that, after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, 
we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the woman, which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Let us ask the Lord's blessing. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank thee for all that we have, especially a Bible, thy word in our hands this morning. Thankful, Lord, for everything that thou hast given. Thank thee, those of us who know that salvation and that precious new birth, that new life which we have received in Jesus Christ. We thank thee for that day that we were quickened, that we were born of the Spirit, born from above. We pray, O Lord, that we might be reminded here this morning of, Lord, our lost estate apart from Christ, that salvation is all of thee. I pray, O Lord, that thou will truly help me and give me clarity of mind, of thought, of expression, that I may clearly and accurately present thy word, knowing that I shall have to stand before my Lord and Master soon and give an account of my stewardship. May I be, as Paul said, free of the blood of all men, for I shun not to preach the whole counsel of God. O Lord, I pray that I will not fear the faces of men, but I will fear thee, O Lord, and I may do thy work. Pray that we all might receive thy word with meekness in our hearts, and we might truly be humbled by the word of God. O Lord, we are all, preacher especially, proud and uh, foolish in our own minds. As we have read, thy people shall all be taught of God. So we look to thy spirit, O Lord, to teach us, to instruct us. Please, uh, Lord, take away anything that we have ever learnt that is wrong. Uh, Lord, we pray that we may only receive the truth. Forbid that I should say anything amiss. May the men be built up and encouraged in their most holy faith. And if any be without Christ, if it could please thee, O Lord, to grant them that knowledge of the one who is the water of life, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who is the word, the one who is the bread, the one who is the rock, the one who is the I am, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the one who is our all in all, the one who is the head of the church and judge of all men, the one who is the savior, the one who is the lamb, the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Teach our hearts all about him and how we are nothing without him. Humble our hearts now and may these glorious doctrines exalt our glorious Savior, who is worthy of all of our love, our praise, our adoration, and our worship here this morning. We ask it 
and pray that we will be doers of thy word and not hearers only. We ask in his precious and peerless name and for his sake. Amen. Well, dear men, uh, you should have, if you haven't, perhaps if you could just pass out the sheets there. I know last time we were gathered together, I had put together a sheet for you with regards to the doctrines of grace which we're going over. These doctrines are clearly found in the Bible. These are not um, doctrines that we have made up, but these are clearly things that we see taught in the Scripture. Central tenets, shall we say, of the Bible. Those things which are absolutely clear, but which we must say, by and large, the modern church rejects. These are solid truths. And uh, it's important that we, as Jude tells us, earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. And uh, we pray now, for the Lord's help as we come to these things. Do just keep those perhaps underneath your Bible. No need to refer to them now. But as I'm going through what we've considered so far, we've considered the doctrine of total depravity, the, doc the doctrine of unconditional election, limited atonement. So we've considered three so far. This morning we're considering the doctrine of or the teaching, when I use that word doctrine, what we mean is the word teaching, and that's the Scripture's teaching on irresistible grace. These are things that we see in the Bible. Now, I want to just say a few things by way of introduction this morning. And uh, by the way, on your sheets there, you will see ample Scripture references for each of those doctrines. So if you need to reference them, or if you need to see again what they mean, what they teach. There's a very simple summary, a succinct summary of each of those doctrines in a little paragraph with uh, the scripture proofs next to them. And uh, it's my intention this morning just to have a little review of those which we've seen so far. Total depravity, unconditional election, and limited atonement. And this morning, as I said, we'll be considering the doctrine of irresistible grace. Now again, as we come to these important studies, my primary intention is to, and I'm aware that there are men here from other churches, and that's a, a wonderful thing. It's important that we have fellowship with like-minded believers, and we try to encourage one another. So few believe these doctrines. These doctrines are refuted by the Church of Rome, by Armenian teaching. But it's encouraging, while we may have a few differences between the churches, we hope that these doctrines will unite our hearts together in the truth. These are core, essential truths that we cannot deny. And uh, they really give us great encouragement as Christians that salvation is all of God. Because we may fall many times as Christians and we, we wonder, certainly Armenian doctrine teaches this, that a man can lose his salvation. But as we will see from Scripture, that is impossible because God finds a man lost without any hope. And he doesn't just simply make the way of salvation possible for him, but he actually saves him. And he keeps that saved sinner right to the very end so that that sinner enters heaven. And that humbles us. It doesn't make us proud. 
And God saves us not because he sees anything good in us. And that ought to humble us. Because maybe we can be sat here and maybe even feel smug this morning. We're not like so many other men that are tucked up in their beds watching television and uh, giving themselves to other things. And maybe we can take pride. We take no pride in this because we realize that it was God that saved us, that God quickened us, and uh, God needs to further humble us. And we're only here at this meeting because God has kept us, and God is continuing to keep us. And so we pray that these doctrines will help us to glorify God. They do magnify God. They do glorify God. And they give us great confidence that even when we sin, God will pick us up again if we truly are born again and if we have this salvation that only God can give. We will work it out. Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and in trembling. Now you can't work out of you what is not in you. It's there and it is wrought by the Spirit of God. And we must also examine whether we have this salvation this morning. So I hope it will also afford us that opportunity to examine has God done a supernatural work in my heart? And if not, well, we can pray that God might and that we might be indeed amongst his people. Well, let us just consider very briefly a few things. First of all, these five biblical doctrines, there are five of them and they are uh, really sort of set forth by that acronym you see on your sheets there, TULIP. You see a picture of a TULIP. And that's because the, the letters, T-U-L-I-P, that little acronym represent aspects of these doctrines of grace. And uh, we shouldn't be ashamed of them. Sadly, today, many churches are ashamed of these doctrines, but they are biblical truths. Biblical truths will always humble man, but they will always exalt God. That's the first thing. And we find these truths from the book of Genesis right through to the book of the Revelation. Maybe perhaps we've never been given eyes to see, or perhaps we've been seeing through uh, rose-tinted glasses. You know, maybe we've been looking at ourselves as Christians with rose-tinted glasses, but we shouldn't. We should see clearly as God shows ourselves to be. In the word of God. You know what I mean by rose-tinted glasses. We use that expression today, don't we? And uh, secondly, so they are set forth in the scriptures and then the Bible is constantly teaching the reality that God is sovereign. You know, look at this world. This world tells us that it's going to end in global warming, but it will not end in global warming. It will end with the coming of Jesus Christ. And he has said, has he not, was there not a promise made to Noah after the flood that God will never destroy this earth again with a flood? God has kept that promise. And you think of it, three quarters of this earth is covered with water and it's not flooded yet. It will never flood and totally destroy man. But it will end with the coming of the Son of God. And it will melt with fervent heat one day. It is going to end. But God has also said that while the earth remains, summer, springtime, and harvest shall continue. And there shall be life on this earth. So long as there are the seasons, there's no 
global warming, bringing this world to a final terminus, bringing it to an end. No, that's not going to be the case. God is sovereign. And the sun is as hot as it was last time we met. The temperatures continue. Yes, there may be fluctuation in climate. But friends, God controls the climate. While we must look after the earth and be sensible people, God will bring this earth to an end. The other thing is that these doctrines teach us that man by nature is enmity with God. Literally a clenched fist in the face of God. That was me before I was saved. And that's you if you're unsaved. You may not like that truth, but it's a plain truth. Romans 8, 7 says the carnal mind or the natural mind is enmity with God. It's not could be enmity, it is enmity. And it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Romans 8, 7. So they, Paul says in verse 8, that are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible. So that it means that if a man by nature, he cannot please God. We thought in certainly our first study, even the plowing of the wicked is sin. That is because a man might plow the field and he might labor to feed his family, but he doesn't do it for the glory of God. He lives for his own glory and for his own purposes and never thinks, thanks the God of heaven who gives him summer, springtime and harvest and seasons. He never lives to God, never lives with the thought of God who's giving him air to breathe, things to enjoy. The heavens and the earth, we're told, declare the glory of God. Psalm 19, the flowers and the trees are screaming, there is a God. Wake up, man. But man is enmity with God. He is opposed to God. And uh, fourthly, these doctrines, they glorify God. So while God is in control, man has a, an unregenerate heart. But God will be glorified in the end. These doctrines do glorify God. Even the wrath of man, we're told, will praise God. And the remainder of wrath, we're told, he will restrain. Lastly, they are humbling doctrines. And they ought to humble us. Even if we've been in the faith many years, they ought to really humble us and cause us to fall down and worship God. So every time we come to open up our Bible, every time we study the glorious truths about God and ourselves, we ought to be further humbled. The Pharisees, sadly, the more they learnt, of course what they learnt was just superficial, never really reached the heart, they became more proud. But that should never be true of us. So, first of all, having considered that first doctrine, let's just look at it quickly. Total depravity. That is, man, first of all, is morally and spiritually corrupt. It doesn't mean that he is as evil as he could be, because as we said, God has put common restraints around society. Even the church acts as salt and light in this world. Didn't the Lord Jesus say that in Matthew 5? Ye are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You put salt 
on putrefying flesh or flesh or meat, it'll be preserved. Some of you like perhaps biltong or beef jerky. You put salt on it. This is how they preserve meat. It'll be kept for a period of time. And a Christian acts as salt in this world. He's a witness to the unbelieving. This world is not as bad as it is because God has even put Christians and the church in this world to act as a preservative. You think of even the charities that have been established in our country, in our land, in our nation. Most of the charities have been established by Christians. So when a man knocks on a door, he may be even an unsaved person. Could you give to this charity, to that charity? And they're good charities. And of course, the person who answers the door, immediately he knows it's, a, it's, it's, it's good to give to this cause or that cause. Now, many of those causes are run by unsaved people today. But the point is this, we know many things are good to do. Man is as not as corrupt as he could be. And yet sin, as we've used that analogy, it's like putting a drop of ink into a glass of water has permeated throughout the glass. So that sin has permeated all aspects of our being, especially our will. The Roman Catholic Church and Armenian theology teaches that man's will from the fall has not been corrupted. That's a, a gross error. The carnal mind is enmity with God. Man does not want to do God's will. He says, I will do my own will. I, I will not be accountable to God. And even if he knows Romans 2, 14 and 15, the law of God in his, written upon his heart of stone, his conscience, we read there, accuses him or else excuses him. So even when you don't swear in the office and some ungodly person comes by, they can be offended because you don't swear, because you don't play the lottery, because you don't do many things. They can be offended by a godly life. What's that? It tells you that man has a conscience, but his will, his mind, is enmity with God. Man, not only that, he has a bad heart, but he's got a bad record. He's totally depraved. It's like the man, he gets in the car, he's been drinking at the pub. Of course, he, we shouldn't do this. He gets in the car and he's drunk. And he gets pulled over by the police. The car's gone in the ditch. And uh, the man's got two problems. One is disorientation. He doesn't know where he is. He's in the ditch. The other problem is he's got a legal problem. The law is against him now. That's us. By nature, sin has affected our minds and our hearts. We have a disorientation problem. We're blind. Uh, there's darkness in our hearts, but we've got a massive legal problem with God. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Solemn, isn't it? Two problems man has. So that's the first doctrine. I use that analogy, and we can use many other analogies. And then we thought of unconditional election. If man is so lost and so depraved, how is he ever going to be saved? 
If he's got a blurred mind, and if he's got a heart that is against God, how is he ever going to be saved? He can't choose God. He can't do anything. How's he going to pay for his bad record? How's he going to do anything? God has to unconditionally elect. Because all have sinned. The scriptures say God looks down from heaven and sees that none are righteous. No, not one. We all sinned in Adam. All lost in Adam. And so God chooses. You may wish to just briefly turn there. Ephesians 1.3. It says there, this is remarkable. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now notice there, this is vital. If you've never seen it, it's vital you see it. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, according as he hath chosen us in him. When? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5, having predestinated us. Now many people hate this truth, that God chose people before the foundation of the world and actually predestinated them. Well, I remind you that he, he didn't choose them because they were better than the rest. Paul goes on to say we were by nature Children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 2. So no one can boast, he says. You're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, 2, 10, which is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. It's no boasting. God chooses unconditionally, not of anything foreseen in the sinner. We saw this, didn't we? Concerning Jacob and Esau, Romans 9. Just turn there, Romans 9, verse 9. And uh, there are several examples that are used here about God's choosing some and not choosing others. Romans 9, 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come... And Sarah shall have a son. This is God's promise to Abraham, remember. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived, that is, um, Isaac's wife, by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose, notice, of God according to election, might stand. So here we have unconditional election. Before these boys would do any good or evil. Now both of them were sinners. Jacob and Esau. Jacob was a supplanter, deceiver. He lied to his father. But God chose the one over against the other. Why? that the purpose of God according to election might stand. I've used this analogy before, but let me use it again. I think it's helpful. Imagine my wife and I, we go to a children's home, and there are 20 children in that children's home. And we agree with each other 
to take ten of them and look after them and give them a good home. Would we be wrong to take ten and to leave ten behind? No. And those ten wanted to come with us. We'd be right to take them. We wouldn't be sinners. In fact, you'd say, well, you're quite good parents if you take them. It's the same. You see, by nature, all children are at enmity with God. All. But he changes the will, the desire of some of the children so that they want to come. And that we'll see today in the next doctrine. You see, so we wouldn't say this is unfair. What we have to understand is we all deserve God's wrath, my friends. We've all sinned. If God were to send me to hell right now, he'd be right. If you can't say that, I don't think your eyes have really been opened to your sin and to the holiness of God. We have to understand that. And the Lord Jesus, as we thought last time, under the next doctrine, limited atonement, or particular atonement, or definite atonement, is a very important one. Number one, there's no point in God dying for the sins of all men. If he did, he'd have to save all men. Because God is just, and he cannot punish sin twice. He punished the sin of his people once in his Son. Jesus said it in John 10, verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep, not for the goats. And we're told in Matthew chapter 25 that there are sheep and goats. The sheep are the ones that hear, that are made willing to hear, and they come to him. He says, my sheep hear my voice. They come unto me and I give them eternal life. In John 10, 27, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. As we will see, they are made to follow. They come and they hear the word of God. And again, this is, you can find the doctrine of limited atonement in the Old Testament. If you just turn with me to Isaiah 53, verse 10. This passage is speaking about the sufferings of the Savior that would come into the world and he would lay down his life for his sheep, who would suffer and who would die for his sheep. And uh, this is some 700 years before Christ would come into the world. And we have this doctrine set forth, speaking of the Savior, the Messiah. And uh, I'm sure if you know your Old Testament very well, it is full of prophecies concerning the Savior that would eventually come into the world, that God would give his Son, Jesus Christ, as a ransom for many. Isaiah 53, you notice, you can just look at verse 6, and here it is speaking about the elect. All we like sheep, that's God's people, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the iniquity of all the sheep. Now you come down to verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When? This is something in the future. When thou shalt, future, make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now notice verse 11. 
by his knowledge or a knowledge of him, shall my righteous servant, that is Christ, justify many, not all, many. Why? For, here's the reason, he shall bear their iniquities. There you have it. Definite atonement, limited atonement, shall bear the sin of many, not everyone. This is why we can read in Hebrews 9.27, For Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, not everybody. And we saw last time that the word all, used in the context that they are given, mean all God's people. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, Who in his own self bear our sins. Peter's writing to Christians. He's not writing to the world. He's writing to Christians who says of Christ, who in his own self bear our sins in his own body. That's when the Christian's sins were dealt with. When Christ took to himself the sins that God knew his people would commit. And you have to think about this. When Christ died, he was going to die for sins past, present, and future. I wasn't even born. Yet he knew every sin of my life that I would ever commit. That's amazing, isn't it? David could say in Psalm 139, Thou knowest my thoughts afar off. What even I'm going to think in the next ten minutes because God is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning to the end. Ephesians 1.11, all things are after the counsel of his own will. God knows everything. There's nothing, David says, that is hidden from him. That's why he could say, Lord, search me. May the Lord search us this morning. You see, if Christ simply died to make the way of salvation possible, as the Armenians teach, what saves a man to them is their faith. That man's faith. Well, if I just believe on Christ, that'll save me. Well, as we learned this morning, we believe because we are the Lord's, because we have been atoned for, because we are his sheep who will hear his voice, and we will come to him, and we will believe upon him. My friend, you see, people don't like this. It's strange to them. But you know, when we come to these truths, they're so wonderful. It makes us to feel how much we have been loved. And we understand we are unlovable men, aren't we? We're all sinners. We're all vile. We've said things, we've done things we know that are amiss. And we don't deserve this. Now, you cannot use the word all, sometimes, as we said last time, meaning always to mean all. Because the Lord Jesus said in John 12, 32, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Did he draw Judas to him? Did he draw others? Herod, Pilate? No. He means his, as you see in that context. Now, without any... Further delay, let us come to this doctrine of irresistible grace. Or we could term it effectual calling. The effectual calling of God. God makes a call 
to his people. But first of all, it means the new birth. Man cannot hear the call of God until he is born of the Spirit. That is something that is so vital today. And uh, sadly, even many so-called Reformed pastors and teachers get this all wrong. And we don't want to be wrong on this. We have to be very clear. It is always the new birth. The Lord Jesus, we read here in John 3, said to Nicodemus, look at verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And if you have a marginal reference in your authorized version, you'll see there where it says, be born again. It, it says they're born from above. Literally, as we will see three times here, the Lord Jesus says, born of the Spirit. That is to receive a supernatural work of Almighty God upon the soul, which we call monogistic. Mono meaning one. In other words, it is the divine act of God upon a soul to bring that soul to spiritual life so that that man understands. Nicodemus came to the Lord Jesus. He, he, we're told here he was a, a ruler and a teacher of the Jews, a rabbi himself, as it were, a, a, a teacher himself, a ruler of the Jews. And he comes to the Lord Jesus and calls him rabbi. Well, the Lord Jesus is more than a rabbi. He is the Son of God. And he himself, if you just look at verse 13, this is remarkable. Verse 13, I want you to see something. You've never seen it, perhaps, in your life. But look at verse 13. He's speaking still to Nicodemus, and he says, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. He's speaking about himself. Now notice this. Even the Son of Man which is in heaven... Jesus Christ is saying, I'm in heaven now. I'm not only here on earth, but I'm in heaven. He is claiming to be omnipresent. We're not dealing here with an ordinary man, but we are dealing with the divine. Now, suffice to say, modern translations omit this, but it's there in the original. Jesus Christ is claiming there to be divine. He's claiming to be God. The I am. Remember what he said before Abraham was. I am. And the Jews picked up stones to kill him. But he passed through the midst. They couldn't get him because he is not only omnipresent, but he's omnipotent. And he has power over all things. And what he's saying here to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you a teacher of the Jews, don't you understand the ABCs about entering and even seeing the kingdom of heaven? Nicodemus, unless you're born again. And this, by the way, is taught in Ezekiel 37. People in the Old Testament, like David, had the Spirit of God in him. When David prayed that prayer of repentance after he had sinned with Bathsheba, he prayed, remove not thy spirit from me. 
David was indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The people in the Old Testament are not somehow cut out of a different bit of cloth and somehow different to us who are born again. They were all born of the Spirit. They were all born again. And they were all saved by grace. They all looked to the Savior to come. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and was glad and rejoiced to see it. Now, here in John 3, Nicodemus is as blind as a bat. He, he knew Scripture. And there are men who, who open up their Bibles every day. But they're as blind to themselves as they are as blind to God. They see themselves to be good. Nicodemus comes to the Lord Jesus at night, not wanting to be seen perhaps by others. We don't really know all the reasons, but he comes by night. And he acknowledges that the Lord Jesus, he says, no man can come from God except he do these miracles. He acknowledges the Lord Jesus Christ's power. And something is unique. And the Lord Jesus stops him right in his tracks. And he, effectively, the Lord Jesus doesn't even respond to this. Look, he stops him. Nicodemus is saying, We know thou art from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And it's as if the Lord Jesus butts in straight away and says to him, Nicodemus, don't you know? Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's quite possible that Nicodemus wanted the Pharisees to work with the Lord Jesus. They were seeing his power, the mighty things that he could do. And, uh, well, perhaps his teaching is just a bit too harsh for them, a bit too close to the bone. And the Lord Jesus says, look, Nicodemus, I can have no part of this unless a man is born again, unless he sees himself to be utterly lost and without hope. Apart from me, he will never enter nor see the kingdom of heaven. And he tells them, look at verse 11, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify what we have seen, and ye receive not our witnesses. He says, you don't, you don't receive the truth, Nicodemus. You and all the Pharisees. And then he goes on to say, if I've told you of earthly things, how will you understand heavenly things? And he says to him, you must be born again. And that analogy of the new birth is given in this way, just as the wind blows. And you don't see the wind? You can't, nobody can see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind, can't you? You can see the trees blowing. You can see its power. And so it is with a changed life. We say to somebody, you know, when somebody says, oh, well, I'm born again, what are you doing? You're waiting to say, well, let's see if that's really true. I want to see if that man really loves God. If he comes to church, if he really prays, if he is a changed person. That's what you're looking for, aren't you? When it comes to seeing the fruits of salvation. And he says, that which is born, verse 6, of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This is what the new birth is. It is a supernatural work of God 
my friends, upon the heart. And so there must, first of all, with irresistible grace, be life. It's the Holy Spirit. And everyone that is born of the Spirit has now God come to live and abide in their heart. It is amazing. But the new birth is nothing less than that. It's not the Spirit simply bringing us to a place so that then we have faith and then the, the Spirit then decides to come and live in your heart. When a man is lost, he's lost. It's not like he's swimming on the top of the sea and you throw him a life raft. And you say, well, now you need to get to the life raft or the life ring. Well, you're asking the man to save himself. In salvation, we're down on the bottom of the sea first. We're dead. And I'm going to show you from Scripture. There's no life. When you see a man who's been knocked over by the car, there's no pulse. There's no breath coming out of his mouth, out of his nostrils. You're checking. You're going through all the various things. I know my friend has done CPR courses. Of course, we've done this and we've checked. There's no life. You don't say to the man, now get yourself down to uh, Hemel Hempstead A&E. Well, I don't think we have much of that anymore anyway, do we? But the point is, there's no hope for that man. You don't say, come on, wake up. He's dead. You can shout, you can holler as long, loud and as long as you want. The man ain't going to get up. He's dead. So unless God does something, there's no hope for that man. If you turn with me to Ephesians 5. Uh, sorry, Ephesians 2, verse 5. We read from chapter 1, which has to do with predestination. Now you notice, and you hath he quickened. Literally, in the original Greek, it's made alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience and among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Paul is writing here to the Ephesian church. Now notice, but, and thank God for the buts of the Bible, of the Bible but God, so that was the way a man was living, he was dead in his trespasses and sins. Not that he was like physically dead, but spiritually dead to God. Dead to the, the sense of his sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us. Who is that? The Ephesian church, all believers. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened. The word again there, 
in the Greek has to do with making alive. Has quickened us together with Christ by grace he is saved and hath raised us up together. So it is like you were dead. But just as he said to Lazarus, remember Lazarus who was, by the way, dead four days in the grave. And his body was starting to rot. What did the Lord Jesus do? Lazarus, come forth. But what did he have to do first? He had to quicken him. There had to be a pulse. There had to be something. And that's a good analogy, I suppose, for when God saves us, life, the Holy Spirit comes, and the person is made alive spiritually. We were dead to Christ. We wouldn't want to come. And then there's a drawing. So there's a, what we call an insuperable work. It's a monogistic work. Ye must be born again. That's what he says here. Born of the Spirit. John 3, 6. You notice there, going back there to John 3, how many times that word is used. The wind bloweth, look at John 3, 8, where it listeth or where it will. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So, he says, in like manner, everyone that is born of the Spirit, not some. You can't see when God begins that work in a man's soul, but you can see the effects. Life comes. How is it one day? There was a day, and this is my own experience. Perhaps, I'm sure for you, there was a day when nothing made sense. And you didn't see your sin for really what it was. And then all of a sudden, conviction came over you. And then all of a sudden, you really understood Christ and his work for sinners. And you were awakened to this. You never saw that before. Or maybe you, you had a, a mere intellectual assent to things. Oh, you said, well, I was a sinner. Paul said that. He said, I understood the law. But actually, it was never driven home to his heart. Once, he was a teacher of the law, but he didn't see himself to be a great sinner. But you see, when God saves you, you see your sin for what it really is. And your hell-deservingness and the loveliness and the preciousness of Christ. That is proof of the work of the Spirit. Christ is then made precious to that soul. That person is born again. And then there is a drawing. Now I wanted you to see, who does God draw? There's an Old Testament verse. Jeremiah 31 verse 33. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Now notice the connection. Jeremiah 31, 33. Therefore, with loving kindness, have I drawn thee. You see, there's the connection. All those who God loves, he draws. Why does he draw? 
because he loves them. I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. He could not help but draw his people because he loved them. And because he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for them. You consider those three that we've considered so far. Total depravity, lost with a lost world, my friend. But he chose us before the foundation of the world. And he sent his son to die for us. And therefore, he will draw. Won't he? He will draw those for whom his son died. Because he has loved them with an everlasting love. This is amazing. But this is the love of God in Jesus Christ. Undeserved. Totally undeserved. That's why David, when he sinned, he said, Lord, please do not remove your spirit from me. Because he knew that's really what he deserved. He didn't deserve God. Even though he had been saved and been shown so much kindness, he thought, how can God love such a worm as me? And that's what David called himself. And that's what Job called himself. We are. And yet God continues to love us. That's the amazing thing, isn't it? We sometimes sing, why, O Lord, such love to me. It is amazing love. It's amazing grace. So he draws, as we said there. Now, you notice, come back to that other reading that we read there, John 6, 37. John 6, 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Not might, will come. Why? Well, it's obvious. Make the connection. Because he died for them. And the Spirit will draw them. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one that comes unto me, I will in no means cast out. I will in no wise cast out. Thy people, Psalm 110 verse 3, shall be made willing in the day of thy power. That's God's power. Have you ever looked at that verse and understood it? Psalm 110, verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. When God works, my friend, he changes the will, the mind, the affection of that person. Again, John 6, 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. No ways. He will in no wise cast out. This is amazing. Is another verse. Psalm 65, verse 1. The Lord says, I am sought of them that ask not for me. <laughs> I wasn't asking God. I wasn't asking for him. I was sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. You know, the Bible says there are no seekers. 
It says, there is none that seeketh after God, but he makes the sinner to seek him. We were lost. Nicodemus was lost. Certainly in John 3. But we read of him later on. This is the encouraging thing. Where he is at the burial of our Lord Jesus. And it's quite possible that he was later quickened. Well, the Bible speaks so often of these things. Romans 9, you may look there. This irresistible grace. It's, it's irresistible because it's the work of God. And uh, he changes the affections. The heart is changed, you see. It's not the same person. Romans 9.16, so then it is not of him that willeth, that is by nature, nor of him that runneth. It's not a man's efforts, it's not his will, but of God that showeth mercy. God says, look, that man is so lost in his sin, but I'm going to, I'm going to change that man's heart. I'm going to change that man's will, his affections, his desires. So that the person, yes, he's suddenly changed. And his heart goes out in affection and love to God. And God's people. John says, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Now when you think of the Apostle Paul, what was he doing? One minute he's got papers in his hands, ready to put many Christians into prison. But all of a sudden... He's their best friend. How do, you, how do you explain that? God. There was a time when I didn't like Christians. And I used to like spending all my time with lost people in the world. And, you know, I do have unsaved friends, of course. But I'd much rather spend time with God's people. We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Now, irresistible grace is irresistible. <laughs> if I could put it as plain as that. Because Christ is made precious. It's a completely changed person. And you know, when you're, when you're changed, you hunger and you thirst for God's word. It's a wonderful thing. Look at uh, that passage that we read of Lydia. It says, whose heart the Lord opened so that she received the things which Paul spoke of. She never would have received them. God had to change that woman's heart. Something else, I don't know if you noticed, but as we read that, if you turn back there with me to Acts 16 once again, you see several things coming out. You see God's absolute sovereignty in terms of who he saves and who he doesn't save. Save, and uh, just before he gets to Philippi, we read verse 6 of Acts 16. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. But you say, well, Paul, hold on. And Paul could have said this, but Lord, there are people in Asia that are going to perish and go to hell. Why is the Lord sending Paul here? Because the Lord has many to save there. 
Why was Paul forbidden to go to one place and told to go somewhere else? Because God is sovereign. And we see this, don't we? Not, my friends, let me emphasize again. And we've always got to come back to this. Not that anybody deserves anything. I mean, you see, not only Lydia saved here, but the Philippian jailer, a hardened man, he's saved. Why? So that as God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Makes us thankful, doesn't it? So we see here, this power of God, it is irresistible. Furthermore, we'll try to round up irresistible grace. Where there is irresistible grace and there's light, there is a real repentance, my friend. This grace is not so that you just do your own thing. When you are drawn to Christ, you are drawn to see your sin. And God gives the gift of repentance. This is what the scriptures teach. If you look at Acts 11, verse 18, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Many of the Gentiles were being saved because God granted it. How does he grant it? By a new heart. The old heart won't repent. The old heart won't have faith. It can't see. It's dead. It's lost. It's without hope. It is of God's grace. Now, we'll conclude with this. Irresistible grace means God also grants faith. It's not a new, new life and light, a changed heart, repentance, but always with repentance comes faith. And that's faith in our Lord Jesus. If you turn back there to Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, for by grace are ye saved through faith. And that of not, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. First of all, he says, by, you're saved by grace through faith. And then he says, for by grace ye are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Faith, my friends, comes into a heart that has been changed. And Christ is the object of faith, isn't it? Isn't he? He is that object of faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now notice, for we are his workmanship. You didn't do it. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. This is why he says to the Corinthians, whoever's in Christ is a new creation. It's a new person. All things are past. Behold, all things are become new. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And as we will see in the next, it is preservation or perseverance of the saints. They will persevere because he that has begun a good work, what do we read? In you, will see it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. Not might, but will to the very end. What comfort, my friends, these doctrines bring us. It's not just 
These aren't my doctrines. This is God's truth. And I always put this challenge. If I've said anything in error, I have to stand before God. And I would be willing to retract anything. Life set amiss here and humbly apologize for it. But I trust that I've faithfully presented to you God's word here today. And maybe for the first time, we'll understand these things more clearly. Salvation is a wonderful thing, isn't it? From beginning to end, it's all of God. I, I close with this. I mentioned it last time. When you consider that acronym, look at it there, T-U-L-I-P. Four of them are man. Look at the first, though. Sorry, are God. The first one, T, is man. Totally lost. Total depravity. That's us. But the other four are what God does. That's how God finds us, totally lost. <laughs> but then he unconditionally elects. Then he atones, limited or definite atonement. Then he does the work of irresistibly calling his people and he preserves them to the end. It's not though somehow we are taking a back seat in all of this. Paul says, when he writes in Romans 8, he says, if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. It's God and us. But ultimately, we, we should say, without God in the equation, there's no us. There's no us. Where would we be without God's grace? We'd still be with the T. And lost forever, totally depraved. But thank God, he is merciful. Amen.